Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Stay tuned for Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, both fishermen and consumers are looking forward to the scallop season with interest. Fishermen, because Maine is trying some new ways to manage the fishery for the long run. And consumers, because there's hardly more tasty morsel from the sea. And they look forward to putting Maine-caught scallops on the table this holiday season and beyond. So this morning we have some folks here in the studio and later by phone who can help us understand how we are um, trying to sustain the the scallop fishery. I'm glad to welcome uh, Dr. Carla Gunther of Penobscot East Resource Center. Welcome to you, Carla. Hello, thank you, Ron. And Trish DeGraff, who is, I think, the I've got the right title, Resource Management Coordinator. That's correct. Thank you for having me. And she is with the Department of Marine Resources. And on the phone with us, um, we have Dr. Aaron Owen of Husson University. Welcome to you, Aaron. Good morning. Great to have all of you with us. Perhaps each of you could, um, starting with Erin uh, on the phone, uh, tell us a little bit about your own background and how you became interested in scallops. So, Erin, um, you, you first. All right. Well, I actually grew up in Bar Harbor, Maine, and always was surrounded by um, the big scallop fishing boom from the 1980s. And then um, I moved back to Maine in 2002 after going elsewhere for um, my undergraduate and master's degrees and got involved with working on scallop research in uh, 2000. And since that time, I've been working on uh, population stock structure of scallops in Maine. And more recently, I've gotten interested in the management side of things and the connections between the science and management in order to improve the fishery. Great. And I have been a scientist on the Scallop Advisory Council since January of this year. Oh, great, great. So that, that connection back to um, seeing um, the, uh, the scallop boom of the 80s, um, you remember that? I do remember that. Great, great. Um, Carla, uh, Gunther, tell us a little bit about your own background and how you came to this work, and perhaps a little bit about uh, um, uh, Penobscot East. Okay. So I've... Let's see, I grew up in New England, and I summered up in Moosehead Lake, actually, so pretty far from the coast. I don't remember the no scallop boom. <laughs> <laughs> More deer hunting and snowmobiling. But uh, so I studied at Woods Hole 
Um, I did lobster biology and lobster behavior as an undergrad, and then I went on to California and got my PhD in interdisciplinary marine science, so studying the interaction between the marine system and its harvesters, its resource users. And uh, upon finishing my PhD at Santa Barbara, I acquired a position at Penobscot East Resource Center, a small nonprofit based in Stonington, Maine, led by former Commissioner of Marine Resources, Robin Alden. And the whole premise is to help sustain the fishing communities from Penobscot East to the Canadian border, and uh, the two most fishing dependent counties on the Eastern seaboard. So uh, Scallops, the center of the resource in Maine is pretty much in those two counties as well. So as soon as I got here uh, in July 2009, um, I started off on Scallops. Trish's predecessor at DMR invited me to start coordinating scallop meetings up and down the coast and talking about kind of a new way of managing the fishery. Great. And Trish DeGraff uh, from Department of Marine Resources, a little bit of your own background and how you became interested in scallops. Sure. I'm going on my 10th year with the department. Um, I took over management responsibilities for the resource about three years ago and have been working with Carla as well. Um, But I do have a background in marine fisheries. I have an undergrad in marine biology and graduate work on fisheries management. And I'm actually from New Brunswick. I'm a transplant down here. Um, My family's from Grand Manan, so I do remember the big scallop boom on that island. Um, So I've been involved in the fishery through different capacities over the past few years, but um, uh, over the last three, I've been really involved with management. Mm, Great, great. Well, thanks to all of you. And we may be joined by um, some um, scallop fishermen, a scallop diver and a a scallop dragger a little later in the program, if we can connect with them. um, And they're um, welcome to give us a call. If if we don't, uh, our our phone number is 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866- 625-9378. Well, um, Aaron, uh, back to you at, at Hudson University. Give us a little bit of background on the, the, the biology of the scallop. We've, we've all eaten scallops, but um, we're, we're not eating the whole critter. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about scallops. Right, that's correct. So scallops live on the bottom, and they have a relatively large shell, and the part that we eat is actually called the adductor muscle, and it's the muscle that's responsible for opening and closing the valves of the shell. So the scallops are distributed along our coast in depths that range from anywhere from 5 to 150 meters, so fairly offshore. Um, They filter feed. They eat both plankton and detritus. Um, I think the important piece of their life history with respect to the fishery is the fact that they live in really dense aggregations, which are called beds, and these are the areas that are targeted by the the fishery. And I think in our area, the local fishermen are probably the most knowledgeable in terms of the distribution of the beds with respect to their to their habitat. But it's important that once these beds are established, they tend to remain there for a fairly long time. So the adults don't really move around very much. Um, And some work has shown that they can move around three kilometers, but they generally stay within that particular area. Um, Their movement is primarily through a larval phase. So they're male and female scallops and they release eggs and sperm into the water column where they uh, develop into larvae that are then in the water column for about 40 days before they settle on the bottom as juveniles. And so it's the larval supply to these beds that will help replenish an area that might have been depleted to fish due to fishing. 
Mm. So these these um, larvae are, are kind of free-swimming. Um, some of them settled um, close to the beds, and some of them are moved by water currents further away? That's correct. Okay. Yep. So um, in terms of thinking about how we manage scallops, it's probably important to... to um, take care of these beds in some way. Certainly, certainly. That's um, one of the important aspects of where we are currently in management has been to work with fishermen to identify what are the best ways to take and manage and protect some of these areas. Right. And so, um, again, um, we don't have a fisherman with us. We may have one later on. But what are the the principal ways in which um, fishermen um, take scallops? So we have two gear types in this fishery. Um, we have draggers who have been fishing along the coast for um, probably the better part of the century, um, as well as we've had have divers in the fishery as well. So both um, fisheries are managed um, in concert or together. They everybody starts the season December second. Um, it's a four month season running until March, and everybody has the same catch limits. And regardless of how the how scallops are caught, they are still high quality, really fresh product, and all. All of our product is day boat caught. Day, it's all landed the same day that it's caught, so it's mm. extremely fresh. And um, scallops can be f- uh, frozen so that we can um, catch them, but as long as they're t- treated well um, on the boat and, and getting to shore, they can be frozen, that, and that product is pretty pretty good quality until you eat it. Throughout the year. Right, yep. right. So um, let's step back from um, scallops and talk about um, uh, fisheries in general. I was thinking on the way over that um, when we broke away from our European kind of connections, we really changed the way we looked at wildlife species. So we think of Robin Hood and the deer in the in the king's forest. Those deer were owned by the king, and I don't know if that still still hap- happens in New Brunswick or not. But yeah, yeah. So that that connection, um, we changed that in in the U.S. and we said, well, no, these are going to be a public resource. So starting with the the things that people could get easily, um, deer and clams probably were the, the or rouse and that sort of thing. Tell us about the origins of managing fisheries. How did we begin to manage a public resource, a resource that actually everyone has um, um, the ability to, to go out and get with, with a license? Yeah. Carla, do you want to take a stab at, at how we manage fisheries? Well, I think initially we didn't even have licensing. Right. It was just a public access. It was out and free for the taking. Um, eventually we started to manage access and limit access in a certain sense by granting licenses. I think it was mostly so we could track the use uh, and who participated. Um, But then we've, as the population has grown, as demand through the marketplace and everywhere else for resources has grown, we've had to further constrain how access is determined and granted to the public resource. And so one of the things we do in probably the past 30, 40, 50 years, we have kind of split fishery management philosophy into limiting how much we take out um, of the ocean. So we count how much resource is out there um, to the best of our abilities and, and then determine, okay, well, based on that species biology and the way it replenishes itself and other environmental factors, we'll determine how much that resource can, de- can sustain us extracting. The other uh, management philosophy or approach is to limit how many participants are in the fishery. So how much effort can be in the fishery? And, um, and that's how we go through licensing or determining access. Mm. In the state of Maine, most generally, we support the, the, the latter approach to fisheries management. We limit how many participants are in the fishery as opposed to counting how many 
uh, species are out there and determining a, a total allowable catch. So, and so, um, what's our track record? <laughs> You've um, all, all of you, um, um, Aaron Owen and and Carla Gunther and and uh, uh, Trish Graff. You've had experience with different species. What's our track record with m- trying to manage a public fishery? Um, lobsters on the one hand, sea urchins on the other, <laughs> um, and then ground fish somewhere in the middle. Um, talk a little bit about uh, that. Uh, start start with with Trish, and then we'll kind of work our way around. Certainly. I think um, we've seen several examples of how humans can have an impact on the marine ecosystem, especially here in the Gulf of Maine. Over the last several centuries, we've fished down several stocks sequentially from cod to menhaden to halibut, even lobster at the turn of the century was considered overfished and quite depleted. Um, What we've had to do with um, scallops in particular is we did have a big boom in the 80s and then the resource declined. Um, to the point that in 2005, we only had a total amount of landings for the whole fishery of 33,000 pounds. And it was at that point that we started, instead of reacting to a situation like that, um, we wanted to be proactive and start planning forward and looking into the future of how we could bring back the fishery and rebuild. So we've had to work with the industry to take and come up with um, some conservation measures, sacrifices that industries made. And we've seen some of the benefits of that. But um Humans are incredibly efficient at taking and um, capturing these fisheries, and so there is the need for proper management to hold back some of that and, and ensure that we can sustainably harvest. Mm. Um, Carla, what would you add to that in terms of, of our track record? Lobster um, fishermen have had conservation measures in place. Um, is that working? Uh, by and large, it has worked, yes, but they've also been very well blessed with a change in climate and a loss of predators and a lot of just sort of a myriad of conditions that have assisted lobster in being the top um, I would say inhabitant of our sea. <laughs> so I think we we are definitely doing a good job with lobsters, but we haven't necessarily had the same success in our other fisheries. Mm. Uh, but we've, you know, we've been harvesting them for, with a lot of pressure for well over a century. Uh, there's been recent research that's compared the different ecosystem, marine ecosystems and fisheries around the U.S. And by and large, the West Coast, whether it's Alaska or California, show that they have one of the um, I, sh- I should say the most retained biodiversity in their systems. This is um, Maine has the most. No, no. the West Coast the other, does, other. where the Northeast has the most depleted okay. um, diversity and the most depleted system. And so, but we have to keep in mind that the West Coast is a much newer uh, populace, <laughs> younger populace than what we have going on in the in the East Coast. And so we have we have a lot of history to kind of make up for and to learn from. Erin mm. Owen on the phone. Um, anything you'd add to this discussion of how we're how we manage um, a public uh, fishery resource? Um, I think I would just point out from the science side of things that, um, as both Trish and Carla have mentioned, the management is often reactive. And so when a fishery appears to begin to be depleted, limitations are set um, that intend to basically slow that process down. And I think historically, the science has really lagged behind the management. So the science to support some of these conservation measures or really um, test whether or not they'll be effective to improve the fishery and have an impact on the conservation. And I think something that is changing is that the science is becoming more in line with the management. Um, Managers and scientists are working together to find out more about the fishery and to develop a plan 
together. And it seems like we've, we've often, um, with lobster fishery, that's a longer uh, kind of term um, market. But we've had a couple of recent examples of, of um, sea urchins and elvers where um, it didn't really work. Any, anything to add about those two fisheries? What, what really um, got in the way of, of good management? Yeah, certainly for urchins, I also oversee management for that fishery as well. And that went through a huge boom in the 80s and 90s and then has just been a precipitous decline since. And um, what happened was it was a new fishery. It was highly unregulated. The state reacted um, slowly to come in and start to limit the licenses and limit limit the effort. And it was almost too little too late. And now we're working to try to, try to at least stem that decline and rebuild um, that fishery. But it is hindsight is I was 2020, and it is incredibly um, important to think ahead. Mm. And but those were two relatively um, kind of sudden markets. In other they words, were. the market developed in those very fast, and there wasn't any time to react. Really, that's true. Um, it's really for urchins. It's a Asian market, and um, they depleted their own fisheries over in Asia, and really came over here to New England and saw this untapped resource, and it just expanded incredibly quickly. A lot of people made a lot of money, and the people who remain in it are are in it for the long term. They want to have a try to find a, a sustainable level of harvest, but it's been um, a tricky balance. Mm. So one of the things that has happened in the last, um, I think you pointed out before we started our conversation on air, that for the last five years or so, really in the rebuilding of the scallop fishery, there was a much more um, intention by the Department of Marine Resources to reach out to fishermen, um, to get them um, thinking with you about the best way forward. That's correct. It was out of necessity. We had to do something. It was just unacceptable that the fishery was just bumping along at such a low level and we really wanted to see the, we knew the potentials there, the, the bio of scallops um, will lend itself to allowing it to rebuild. So we really had to um, do a lot of work. My predecessor was the first one to implement some of these closures that um, were able were were allowing smaller juvenile scallops to reach market size and help rebuild the resource. And and Carla's done a lot of work engaging industry. Um, and it's it's been countless meetings, countless hours, a lot of fishery fishermen's input to kind of get where to to the point that we are right now. And so one of the things that the department did, and I think many fisheries have advisory councils. So describe, and then I, I think Erin uh, is a member of that council as well. So describe the, the workings of the Scallop Council. How did how do they fit into this? And then we'll talk with Carla about what she learned from fishermen. Yeah, certainly. So we have a, a strong co-management ethic here in Maine. Um, we manage with the advice provided through advisory councils. Erin um, is a member of that council. We have another scientist, Rick Wally, as well. Um, it's also uh, staffed with members of the industry, with draggers and divers and buyers, um, as well as a member of the public. And we really vet a lot of our thoughts or ideas about management strategies through that council. It's a public arena. People are welcome to attend these meetings. We also go above and beyond that and hold local meetings to gather input from industry. Um, I have a lot of conversations one-on-one -on -one with people as well, not everybody likes to speak in a public forum. So um, that is how we craft our management strategies through that council. Then we take um, the products or the recommendations of that council and we go through a formal public rulemaking process where people can write in or come and testify. And then we put those um, the results of those meetings and input to work in the fishery. Mm. I'll just remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. As you can guess, we're talking about scallops and how do we sustain that fishery um, into the future. Our guest here in the studio. You've just heard from um, Trish DeGraff of the Department of Marine Resources, um, also in the 
studio is Carla Gunther of Penobscot Resource Center in uh, Stonington. And on the line with us is Aaron Owen of Hudson University. Aaron, you're a member of this um, Scallop Advisory Council. What's been your experience with, with this group? Well, I find it an incredibly informative experience. I've really enjoyed my time so far on the Scallop Advisory Council. I've learned a lot about the role of, of science in supporting the management and also the best interest and the needs of, of the fishermen and the people who participate in the fishery and whose livelihood depends on it. I think it's a very important way for everyone to participate in, in having some input into the management decisions in the fishery, and I, I really value being a member of the council. And you said you, you learned from the fishermen. I've learned a lot from the fishermen. Um, the fishermen, I think, are probably one of our, our greatest sources of knowledge about the fishery itself. Um, so they know much more, um, I would say, than, than many scientists about the distribution of the scallops, where the scallops are, how they move around, the different characteristics of different beds, and how that affects um, the product that they, that they harvest, so the size of the meat relative to the size of the shell. So their input into the management of the fishery is absolutely critical. Great. And so, Carlo, your experience with um, um, holding literally dozens, hundreds of meetings uh, up and down the coast, um, you and your colleagues at Penobscot East, tell us about that process and, and how you got started and, and what were some of the things that you learned uh, about um, scallop industry um, from these meetings? Well, uh, the condition or the context for me to start having those meetings with fishermen along the coast was that uh, in 2009, the state implemented scallop closures. There were 12 closures that they created um, with fishermen input. They had driven, drawn the lines and identified areas that, if closed for three years, could potentially replenish or rebound, and the populations there would become more dense than they, than they were in 2009. When that plan went into place, there wasn't necessarily a plan as to what to do later. And there wasn't necessarily agreement across the state uh, among fishermen of what the purpose, the overall goal. I mean, they knew they wanted to rebuild scallop populations, but they didn't know whether those rebuilt populations inside a closed area were to supply larvae to external areas and then allow fishing to occur outside or to do something more like crop rotation, rotational closures, where, okay, let an area lay fallow from harvest and then move on, you know, while you fish other areas, and then when it rotates to an opening, you'll have a, re a rebuilt population to fish on. So uh, parts of the state and individual fishermen approached the philosophy or the purpose of closure in different ways. What that meant uh, was that each one of these areas definitely responded quite differently. We discovered in 2012, three years later, when um, when fishermen went, were able to fish in those areas and then when the state surveyed them, we certainly saw that there was great successes in some areas and not so great successes in others. So um, my meetings were held in 2010 through 2011 to ask fishermen how they wanted to manage the opening of these closed areas. And uh, by and large, the state um, fishermen responded very differently. They had very different ideas across the state. And of course, I think that mostly reflected, like Aaron was saying, their knowledge, their perception of how the resource in their backyard behaved, how it how it's related from one bay to another, from offshore beds to another bed. And uh, we have a really great 
really great, famous um, scallop bed in Gouldsboro Bay. It's got wonderful habitat. It's almost a perfectly enclosed area. The scallops are very dense. They grow pretty fast. And closing that area was almost a no-brainer for for both the state and the fishermen in the area. And we did see a really great uh, rebound of the resource there. So fishermen in eastern Maine in my meetings had proposed more of a, a crop rotation idea. They said, okay, let's close each of these bays like Gouldsboro or Dyer's Bay or Addison River. And those are nice kind of small areas, fairly easy to enforce um, because they're small bays. You can see just about all the activity from the shore. And um, and the state took those proposals and turned them into uh, a broader plan for the center of Penobscot Bay onto the outer shore, um, the mouth of Cobbscook Bay. And with some tweaking back and forth uh, with fishermen and between Trish and fishermen and the state biologists, they created uh, a plan for rotational management throughout um, eastern Maine. The western Maine area, fishermen there said it's that that's not going to work for us. And instead, they wanted to create some more targeted like seed stock closures, areas where they say, okay, we know this is a really good area um, to, to sustain a pretty large, dense population of scallops. They can then provide larvae out to external areas that will then be distributed for us to fish upon. Um, and we're now kind of proceeding with that experiment. There was the initial experiment in 2009, and now we have a, a different management for different areas of the coast that we've embarked on this, this new experiment. Um, and you know, there, it's got a mixed bag of reaction, but by and large, fishermen, I'll let Trish say how many scallops were caught last year. <laughs> Yeah, so the numbers aren't totally in for the whole season. We report on calendar year, but the landings from December alone in 2012 far surpassed the past five years total landing each year. Um, so we've taken the fishery from in 2005, 33,000 pounds valued at $200,000 in um, 2012. That just included December only of the opening. The fishery was almost landing or landed almost 300,000 pounds valued at $3 million. So we have seen the benefits of these conservation measures. It sounds like this is um, what any ecologist would hope for. Um, local knowledge being applied um, and, and different management strategies for those local areas based on local conditions. And perhaps there's, there's some geologic base for this too. It's not just that one side should should fit all in terms of how we manage a resource like scallops. Yeah, that's certainly correct. And that's what we're trying to do with the, we have three different zones and they have three different management strategies based on the input of what fishermen wanted to do in those areas. Erin mm. um, Owen on the phone, what would you add to this notion of, of how we, um, uh, are we gro growing uh, better at, at how we manage a fishery like scallops by these kind of local experiments? Oh, I, I definitely think so. And I think the current management plan reflects what we know about the biology of the species and our, our current knowledge. So separating the coast into these two primary areas, the western part of the state west of Penobscot Bay and the eastern part of the state from Penobscot Bay to approximately Casco Bay, makes a lot of sense in terms of the western part of the state being these small target closures and the eastern part being rotational areas. So what we know about the eastern part of the state is that these local areas, when closed, tend to, provi to provide local benefits. Mm. So when Goolsboro Bay was closed, um, the local area was replenished, and then there was more biomass available in that area for local harvest. 
And we know from population genetic studies that there tend to be um, very localized population genetic structure on the eastern part of the state. On the western part of the state, on the other hand, um, the larvae that supply these areas tend to be fairly sporadically supplying these areas. And so some of these beds may be less persistent than the beds in the eastern part of the state. So some of these targeted local closures that aim to um, spill over larvae into other parts of the fishery makes a lot of sense. That's great. And it seems like, um, you know, it leads to thousands of research questions for you and your colleagues to to learn more as as we begin to to, uh, do this work. Absolutely, it does. Great. So um, we're going to try to get um, a fisherman on the line. We'll see uh, if that works. But um, um, uh, uh, Trish, how uh, during the season, how do you know um, when to close an area? That's, I think that's, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, we we manage in an adaptive way. Um, what Due to our rulemaking authority, throughout the season, we're only uh, able to take away opportunity, fishing opportunities. So what we try to do is provide as, as much opportunity up front and slowly when um, concerns happen or we're aware that an area is being depleted, we take and take away that opportunity. Um, Essentially, we rely on several different streams of data that come in. We do have sea sampling and port sampling staff, uh, science staff in the field and on vessels taking um, measurements and looking at catch per unit effort. Uh, We also have, I have a number of fishermen that call me directly and let me know what their reports are, how things are going. Um, or to just pass along concerns. Um, we also use patrol. Marine patrol officers are often in the field conducting interviews with people or doing boat counts in areas so we can have an idea of the amount of effort in certain areas. Um, so we, we look at a number of different things, and then we also have our survey. So we survey the coast in the springtime to get an idea of what... So what that's actually going out and, and getting scallops up. Yeah, it's a fishery independent survey, so we survey the areas after the fishery occurs, and it gives us an idea of how how well we perform throughout the season. Mm. Well, um, we're going to let um, Aaron Owen go, but last any last thoughts? Um, not last thoughts, but any um, kind of current thoughts about uh, where things are headed, Aaron? Before we let you go and try to get some fishermen on the line. Well, I think that, and, I, and I'm sure this will be part of the discussion later on, but there are other examples of using these rotational or closure-based spatial management strategies. But I think that Maine is sort of unique. It's an inshore fishery versus an offshore fishery like the federal fishery. And yet for an inshore fishery, the area is really pretty large. And um, and I, I don't know how much you'll talk about the federal fishery later, but it's really managed with very rigorous science and, and monitoring following along what Trish is saying, but in the state of Maine, we don't, we don't, we really lack the resources to monitor at that particular level. And so I think that we have a really amazing opportunity to kind of lead the way in these spatial management plans by collaborative research opportunities among fishermen, managers, and scientists. And I think that that's the direction things are moving in the future. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your teaching schedule, your research schedule to be with us on Talk of the Towns this morning. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for bringing attention to this topic. Great. That's Dr. Erin Owen of Hudson University. She's a member of the Scallop Advisory Council, and um, we're talking about scallops here um, on Talk of the Towns here on WERU, uh, trying to figure out how to best sustain the scallop fishery where we may not have done all that well in some of the other fisheries. So this is an opportunity to to do it right um, and uh, get input from uh, both the managers, uh, folks from the Department of Marine Resources, and their science staff, but also other 
other scientists and the fishermen um, themselves. Uh, themselves. Here in the studio, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Carla Gunther from Penobscot East Resource Center and Trish DeGraff of the Department of Marine Resources. We're going to hope to um, find some some uh, fishermen out there. I know that uh, this is a relatively good day. So one of our scallop divers, Andy Mays, um, said, I've got to go and pull some traps. So um, we, we may not get him. Um, and we'll see. We'll see what happens there. So this notion of, of having um, uh, closures um, along the coast and then figuring out what's going on within the season, the department has the ability to um, close down an area, um, again, to protect it so that we have scallops in the future. Yes, that's the whole idea is um, we, we want to make sure that there are scallops left on bottom um, because of, again, the biology of these species, they do tend to multiply and they're very gregarious. And so if you do, if you are able to leave scallops on bottom at the end of the season, they will multiply and there'll be more the following season. So it's finding that right amount of removal to ensure that the fishery can receive some benefits. They can, you know, they have to make an income from the fishery, but at the same time, allowing that limited harvest to happen while still keeping that goal of building rebuilding the overall resource. Mm. I'll list our phone numbers in case there are folks out there who would like to participate in our conversation this morning. 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500 if you've got a question or perhaps you'd like to share your experience with uh, um, eating scallops or or fishing for scallops. What are your thoughts and and, uh, concerns today? 1-866-625-9378. So um, you've got the ability to do um, closures um, and and, um, you can do some of that in the season and then you, I suppose at the end of the season, you try to take a look and say, how did it, how did it all work? Um, and then do you tweak it um, year by year in terms of uh, how's the process work there? Yeah, so last year was the first year we were really managing these areas that were rebuilt in a different way. Um, in the past, we had only used the emergency authority to close areas when the resource was already depleted, when the, when the damage was already done. So for these newly rebuilt areas, we were really looking to only remove a, a portion of the resource in there so they would continue to grow but you could harvest a limited amount so we used what we call a trigger mechanism and the goal was to remove 30 to 40 percent of the resource um, so that it could continue to rebuild and so what we did last year is we monitored the different different data streams that were coming in from industry and patrol and science staff. Um, we monitored throughout the season in order to make those management decisions. And then we went through and surveyed the area after the season. What we found, um, we have a couple of really good examples of where we got it right, but we also have some examples of where we got it wrong, and we're trying to learn from those. So knowing that, we... Um, we really need to be precautious because um, the fishery is ac- incredibly efficient and can remove a lot of product very quickly. Um, so whenever we, um, moving forward, learning from that, we're trying to, whenever we hear of anything of concern, to really take it seriously and make a decision in a quick, in a very quick fashion. And Carla, in your conversations with fishermen, were they the ones that came up with this notion of a trigger mechanism? Did they, how, how, how were those kind of discussions, how did they happen? Well... Um, again, I, I was starting my conversation around the question of what should we do with the areas that have been closed. They're set to open in another year. So let's let's go around and, and talk about those plans. Uh, at the time, the closed areas hadn't been um, they they hadn't been surveyed in a way to assess how closures had had um, affected any of the scallop populations within them. 
So our conversations were a little hindered, and fishermen kept saying, well, we don't know. We don't know. No one's let us go in there. We haven't been allowed to fish in there, so how can we know whether scallops have come back or not? And they were uh, a bit loath to to come up with a, a very extremist um, or too liberal of, of a rule about how to open those closed areas. So they said, well, how about we create some sort of flexible measure? And they want to say, okay, what about a threshold? And if we're able to communicate back and forth with the state and decide, okay, well, our catch rates are too low, or maybe our, um, our total poundage that we're able to catch in a day seems too low, we should be able to close that area or slow harvest down or something along those lines. So, so, so in terms of, of the season opens on December 2nd, there's um, places where they can fish, still places where they can't. Um, what's the experience of a fisherman? They're going out and they're, they're dragging or they're diving. And um, basically, um, the more scallops there are, the better they do at the end of the day. So if they start to do less well towards as the season goes on, that is the fishermen and the and Department of Marine Resources are saying, okay, and that's we can look at those those kind of trends and figure out when to to close an area. Yes. Okay. Yes. So a lot of fishermen were catching. I mean, when, when they were doing really well, they were catching their daily limit of 180 pounds mm-hmm. by. 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. by 7 a.m. in some places. So that's that's a good day. And um, and then by middle of the season in some areas, it was taking them till noon or to one o'clock in the afternoon. And so that was an indicator to some local fishermen that, okay, the, the resource just isn't isn't doing as well as it was earlier in the season. So maybe we should we close it or maybe slow something down. Um, in other places, it didn't really slow down for the whole season. Or maybe just looking at catch rates, uh, you know, they, were, they weren't getting as many bushels per tow as they were in the earlier part of the season, things like that. But a lot of that, uh, the arguments you hear from fishermen around using these different indicators is that local guys to a, a certain bay know where the honey holes are. So there are, say, areas that are just really famous and anyone from any part of the state knows how to target that spot. But only local guys with some historical local knowledge know those sort of secondary honey holes that aren't as famous, they aren't as well known. And so they were still able to do really well knowing with that local knowledge. So there is some, um, I would say, some disengaged individuals in, in the fishery because they felt, all right, well, hearing from that mass portion, that mobile fleet that doesn't know my area, that catch rates had slowed down, well, it's because it was their fault. They They didn't didn't know know. how to fish there. So you shouldn't have necessarily closed my only area in my backyard based on their catch rates. Mm. So um, we we do have a lot to learn about the the different data streams and how to weight them or how to value them. But it's also another key piece to my conversations with fishermen in in suggesting that proposal about using this flexible threshold measure or trigger mechanism was that the onus was on them. It was their responsibility to report very freely and honestly with Trish about what they were seeing. And really, Trish has been great. It was tireless last year having to receive text messages, Facebook messages, the whole works. The entire media was blown up for her in that sense. Mm. So this is not a science. It's kind of an art. It's taking all the available information from lots of different sources and trying to say, well, I think 
it's time. <laughs> this is my best judgment. Exactly. It's taking the information from all those different sources and trying to make a, an assessment of what's the what's the real picture here? What are we really talking about? Um, are one of those data sources, you know, off? Or really you want to take and have a holistic picture of what's actually happening and happening in an area. And then I pass that information along to the commissioner and he makes the ultimate decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk a little bit about um, what's going to happen on December 2nd. Uh, um, a lot of attention down east because that's where most of the scallops are. Um, tell us a little bit about um, what what would be happening on, on the, the early morning of December 2nd. Uh, who would, Carly, you want to talk about what, what, what you suspect is happening? Then we can go to, to Trish. Okay. So um, I know there's quite a few fishermen, some that we had hoped would join us on the radio show today are, are uh, fast and furiously bringing their lobster gear ashore. And they're getting ready to to put the iron on and put their drags on their boats, uh, gearing up for December 2nd. And they, right around Stonington, I think we'll probably have 30 to 50 boats coming out of our harbor, getting ready to go. And uh, I think a lot of effort's going to go down to Cobbs Cook Bay. A lot of effort from about, we'll say, MDI, because their map doesn't look very good uh, <laughs> close to home. And they'll probably head down to Cobbs Cook and, and do pretty well there. Mm-hmm. So talk about um, what we know about Cobbs Cook Bay. That's a pretty special spot in terms of scallops. What do we know about it? Why is it successful? And what have fishermen done down there to, to begin to to manage that area a little bit differently than the rest of the state? Yes, it is. It is special. Um, the area has been able to um, re- able to take a lot of fishing pressure and rebound um, each year. Uh, Basically, the fishermen in that area really wanted to go above and beyond, and they have higher or more conservative catch limits in that area. They they are only able to get two two buckets or uh, 10 10 gallons total of meats. That's about 90 pounds a day, and they have a much shorter season. They have a meat count and a drag drag size limit. So they have um, more rigorous conservation measures in that area, and it's and what has happened is the resource has been able to rebound. Um, last fall, when we surveyed that area, we, we it was the highest amount of biomass we had seen in that area in the entire time series. A large amount of scallops are found in that area. Um, because of this, it is very attractive to fishermen to take and go down and fish in that area. It's a relatively well-protected area, so fishermen can um, reliably access the resource on a daily basis. Um, so there will be a lot of fishermen traveling to that area. It will be the site of a lot of fishing activity, um, and we will be keeping a really close eye on it. And as Carla said, due to some of the rotational closures and some of um, we've also put some targeted closures on to just protect areas that were heavily fished last year. Fishermen in other areas that may not have a lot of bottom available to them may be traveling down that way because there is a mobile component of this fleet. There always has been, and people people will probably be traveling down there to fish. So that must mean uh, or make the fishermen from Cook Bay feel a little funny. <laughs> um, so how do, again, it's a public resource, so anybody in the state of Maine with a, um, a license can, can fish, um, but that, that notion of that's our territory, um, doesn't always work. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the lobster fishery, a lot of the, the fishing industry is, is kind of 
kept in these little boxes or even territory that they they kind of fish that territory whereas there is this mobile component in the scallop fleet and it's true when the state of maine opens it's open to everybody all across the state and a lot it is a public resource so these guys can you know choose to fish where they like although it is true guys in cobscook have um taken on these more um ambitious conservation measures and they have seen the results of the resource rebound in that area, but it has been attractive to other fishermen because they can get a higher return for a lower amount of effort. Mm. So um, it is, that's why there will be a lot of activity down there this year. What would you add to that discussion of Cobbs, Carla? What, 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 did you hear anything different around um, from fishermen in that area than other parts of the state, for instance, in terms of what their hopes were for kind of, kind of localized management rules? Well, the, the fishermen down in Cobbs Cook have for many years been asking for kind of an isolated zone and an area um, to have access to scallops that were just for those who owned properties on the shores of Cobbs Cook Bay. So uh, they've gone to the state with several proposals over the years and they haven't necessarily been well received. And um, one reason is because it is somewhat unconstitutional. And the the point is they need to be, we already have lobster zones. And so they would argue that and say, well, we have lobster zones where they are exclusive territories to folks in an area. Why can't we do that for scallops as well? And so one of the things when I worked with, with fishermen in that area a few years ago was to say, well, let's come up, you know, you do have a different biology here. You have some real scientific reasons and some basis that a resource agency can use in order to um, make rules that are specific to your area. And remember, we we heard from Erin um, Owen that that there's a different genetic kind of makeup. So we know that those scallops um, really stay in that area. They're not broadcast elsewhere. So it's a different population. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Or, or could be argued that it's a different population. Mm -hmm. And you talk to every fisherman and it has a totally different size meat count. I mean, a scallop with a four inch shell has a completely different body size or adductor uh, muscle size than a scallop from say Blue Hill Bay or Stonington. So um, they're, they're visibly different as well. So uh, a few years ago, uh, the season opener, a bunch of fishermen from Cobbs Cook Bay noticed that a uh, four-inch shell had, or no, they were just like three, three-and-a-half-inch shell scallops, that the majority of scallops on bottom in one area of Cobbs Cook were these small, sublegal scallops. And a bunch of, the big flurry of phone calls came in asking for an emergency closure of that area so they wouldn't be harvested throughout the season and be tempting to harvest sublegal scallops. And the state responded. Um, they actually got a bunch of, I think they had radio and television crew down there as well. And so the state responded and, cre and created this emergency closure. I think um, fishermen there in that area who were felt that the state hadn't heard them with their previous uh, proposals to zone or close off the area, they did feel heard through that process. And so I think they're, they're trying a little bit more to figure out okay, how, how can we achieve a common goal here as opposed to looking at, at the state and, and our interests as being separate? Mm. Why don't I list our phone numbers one more time and see if there's uh, folks out there who'd like to participate in our conversation about scallops, 1-866-625-9378. Um, and we're trying to reach uh, Dana Morris, my colleague from Sea Grant, and we seems to have misplaced his phone number or got it wrong. So, Dana, if you're listening, um, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. Is that Dana on the line? No, it's a, somebody else is on the line. We're glad to take that call. If you'd give us your first name, and the town you're calling from, please, and then go ahead with your question or comment. 
Howard calling somewhere in transit between Glen Cove and Rockland. Sorry about calling while I'm driving. That's but I all just right. heard the uh, conversation there. And I have a question for some of your panels. Do they ever use a scallop shell as a byproduct of the scallop catch? I have an artist who does work on scallop shells. She's having a hard time uh, getting a good supply of them. And um, I'm sure she'd like to buy some if any of the scallopers wanted to uh, set aside some shells. Great, That's great question. question. Good. Thanks for your call. So thank you, Howard, for calling in. Um, one of the reasons your artist is having a hard time finding those scallop shells is that we have a requirement that um, the scallop meats be shucked at sea. This is partially due to, to a paralytic shellfish toxin that can be contained in um, the viscera or body of the scallop. And so because we don't want, it's a public health concern, we don't want people to be sick eating eating that viscera um, or the gonads, we require that the, the whole entire scallop be, be shucked at sea and so what comes ashore is just the scallop shell or just the scallop meat the adductor muscle itself um, however that being said it may be possible that one of your art your artists could contact a local scalloper and he may be willing to take and hold on to some shells for her um, and if you wanted to contact me at the Department of Marine Resources I'd, I'd be happy to find somebody in her local area that I could probably um, put her in touch with great great question and great answer now we do have Dana Morse on the line Dana is with University of Maine Sea Grant and he's taking um, a little bit different approach to the future of, of the scallop fishery um, he's helping some folks um, kind of think about aquaculture for scallops. Dana, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your work and, and uh, what you see the, the likely um, pr- uh, trajectory of this work uh, in terms of aquaculturing scallops. Sure. Thanks. Um, well, there have been uh, a few trials in the past going back well over 10 years to grow scallops as an aquacultured product, uh, but it was really after about 1999 um, that people got interested, uh, I, I think, a little bit more popularly. Um, there was a delegation to uh, the Aomori Prefecture of Japan, um, and I tagged along on this group, and we really learned about a, a technique to capture scallop larvae, or also called spat. Um, and there's a particular type of equipment called a spat bag or a spat collector. And as it turned out, um, many places along the main coast are good to collect these uh, juvenile scallops. Um, and at the time, we were doing stock enhancement so that we were taking those small scallops and, and putting them back down on the seabed. But at the same time, many of the fishermen who participated would come back and they'd haul a single spat collector and have maybe two or 3,000 small scallops. And one of their reactions, I, I think a pretty natural one, was, oh boy, I'd like to grow some of these in a cage. Um, and so Ever since then, there's been kind of a slow-simmering interest in uh, scallops, both from shellfish growers and from fishermen. Um, But to Trisha's point about uh, biotoxins, um, it's been a while until we could get the regulatory structure straight so that we could think about selling more than just a meat, uh, for example, a row-on scallop or a hole or a lot. Um, And so now we're doing some trials both with commercial fishermen and shellfish growers around the coast. which I find to be a very interesting and productive kind of partnership, um, to do things like check growth rates and see what kind of gear will work. Um, And if we're successful, um, and we're working very closely with uh, the state and the Department of Marine Resources on this, if we're successful, um, we may have an additional product 
um, to come out of uh, the aquaculture industry um, for people to sell, and that, that will mean uh, hopefully um, new markets, uh, some economic activity, and that sort of thing. Great. And Dana, if, if folks want to learn more about your work, um, where would they um, get that? Is, is there a website you can point them to? There is. Um, on the Maine Sea Grant website, um, there is uh, a set of extension pages, uh, and I have my own extension page, and there are a number of my projects on there. Um, and this Scallop Pilot Project is, is listed in there as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns this morning. Thanks for having me. Dana Morris of the University of Maine Sea Grant Program. We do have another caller on the line. If you'd give us your first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, thank you. My name is Mike from Bass Harbor. I guess I'm surprised that the idea is a sustainable fishery, and you talk about dragging. There's just something that uh, about the notion of dragging that would seem to make the whole concept of protecting the fisheries uh, uh, not sustainable. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm just curious about uh, you know what the science behind supporting that is. Thank okay, you. great. Thanks for your call, Mike. Yeah, so the, we, we've talked about the fact that there are two ways to take scallops, diving and dragging. Um, who wants to start with that? Um, uh, Trish, uh, DeGraff uh, first, and then maybe some comments, because you've worked with, with both. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So um, we have had scallop dragging along our coast since the 1880s. Um, it is, a, you know, a historical component of our fleet is the draggers. And um, what we've tried to do over time is basically improve the the configuration of the drag. There are some um, areas along the coast that have a drag size limit, and that is to um, incentivize a smaller, lighter, more probably habitat-friendly drag size. Um, Also, what we have gone to is a four-inch ring. So that four-inch ring allows for juvenile scallops to take and fall through and not be brought to the surface, allowing them to grow to market size. So we have done some some ha- made some efforts to improve that uh, drag configuration to make it a little more habitat friendly. Also, the activity where the dragging occurs, it's usually pretty sandy, flat bottom. It's not complex habitat, and it's a pretty, um, for the most part, the the amount of bycatch that comes up with um, the scallops is pretty minimal compared to other fisheries. Mm. Carla, you worked with uh, both f- f- um, divers and and draggers. Um, I'm sure that there are divers who feel like we should have draggers and we probably have some draggers who feel we shouldn't be having divers out there how do you see this playing out we certainly hear the conversation at every scallop advisory council meeting and i think the the general the general sentiment is that the two the two gear types are not mutually compatible and so there are quite a few uh, suggestions out there from from industry that we should probably have you know say cable areas uh, be non drag areas and then let you know the divers dive in the cable areas um, and then there's other people who say okay there's only 90 some odd licensed uh, scallop draggers or divers in the state so let's let them age out because right now there's a moratorium on, on new licenses so uh, I think Trish is right, though. There's a lot of push within the industry to uh, to make the drags more bottom friendly. I think there's a decent portion of the population. I mean, Gouldsboro Bay, like she had said, is limited to a four foot drag. Uh, a lot of fishermen, when I worked with them uh, over the past few years, have put together along with their uh, rotational management proposal. They had suggested head bail weights and drag lengths and all these other things to the configuration. I think. 
uh, I mean, I understand the, the caller's concern with dragging being an unsustainable um, method, but I, we really have to be honest. This is a winter fishery in the state of Maine, and um, safety and tradition and everything else need to really be, you know, we can improve on what we have, but we don't necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Great. Well, um, let's let's just begin to, to wrap up. Where do you think all this is heading? <laughs> What's your hope? Uh, uh, first, uh, 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 Trish, um, where would you like this to be going? And then get some comments from Carla from, from her perspective. I certainly think that we're on the right path. However, I will wholeheartedly acknowledge that there is improvements. And um, we, we, as a department, are trying to be adaptive in this new approach. It is a brave new world in terms of scallop management. We've come a long way but we still do have a long way to go. So we always are looking for input from fishermen about how to tweak things and make them more um, easy easy to be bore on the shoulders of industry. Um, It's got to make, it's got to be common sense based. It's got to work for them because ultimately they are the clients that we're trying to serve. We're trying to ensure that our coastal communities can still retain um, some access to these fisheries in the winter time when really there's not much else, not many other economic opportunities especially in the Downey's portions of the state. So um, we are looking to take and try to adapt and evolve our plan, but um, we are trying to be flexible as well. Great. I like that notion that you're using something called adaptive management. You're learning from the process. Exactly. Great. And Carla, you're you're part of an organization that says uh, we ought to be fishing forever. So uh, how does this play into uh, this notion of, of how do we manage scallops so that we can fish scallops forever? Well, uh, we certainly believe uh, wholeheartedly in the co-management process and having fishermen be part of the solutions and part of sustaining a fishery forever. Certainly, it's their, in their own best interest as well as their community's long-term interest, especially, like I had said at the beginning of the show, the Washington and Hancock counties are two of the most fishing-dependent counties on the eastern seaboard. Um, they derive a lot of their economic sustenance from fishing, and so we really need to be engaging all community members in that future. And it seems to me one of the things that you have done is to create that safe space so different points of view can be expressed and you kind of move that information along to the department. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. Yes, thank you. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests this morning. We had uh, Dr. Aaron Owen of Hudson University by phone and also Dana Morse, University of Maine Sea Grant by phone. In the studio with us, we had Dr. Carla Gunther from Penobscot East Resource Center and Trish DeGraff, the Resource Management Coordinator from the Department of Marine Resources. That's a mouthful. Um, Thanks to those who listened and called in. Thanks to our wonderful underwriters. Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
support for WER.